The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. So Acts chapter 16, uh, we're going to begin in verse 11, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 40, which is the end of chapter 16, and, uh, and I'm just going to pray and ask God's blessing over his word, and then we'll dive in and, and, uh, and I'll preach. So uh, beginning in Acts 16 and verse 11, here's the word of God to us. So, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. 
So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. And let me pray really quick. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the privilege and the freedom that we have to gather on this Sunday morning uh, to hear your word, uh, to hear your word preached. And uh, Father, I just, I want to confess, uh, not, not just for me, but for all of us in this room, that I know that we are utterly incapable of actually hearing from you because we are so rebellious and we are so sinful. And so, Father, um, in light of that inability in us, God, I ask that you would give us your spirit this morning, or that your spirit would be free to move in our midst, and that you, by the power of your spirit, would open our hearts to hear from you. Lord, that you would help me in my weakness and in my brokenness, too, as I proclaim your word. Help me to be faithful to you and helpful to your people. I pray, Lord God, all these things in the name of Jesus, our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. God, we love you. Uh, in Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, hey, two weeks ago, because um, I was gone last week and had my friend Larry preaching as I was out for a week of rest and renewal and deer hunting and all sorts of other good stuff with my son. Uh, so two weeks ago, when we were in the text, uh, we surveyed all of the events that led up to today, right? All of these events that led up to the Apostle Paul and his crew uh, receiving this call to go minister in this place called Macedonia, that's where we left off, was this vision that Paul had of a man saying, hey, please come help us over here in Macedonia. And that, that, that for us today would be modern day Europe. So the image and the picture is, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Acts and track it from now, what began in this little city of Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit comes and fills believers and they start spreading the gospel, all sorts of crazy shenanigans happen is the gospel literally, God is moving the message of the gospel outside the boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? And so it's now, in a sense, moving out of the Middle East and into more of the western part of the world. That's why this is so significant. All of those events that took place two weeks ago that we studied in uh, it would have been chapter 15, verse 36 through verse 10 of chapter 16. That whole large section, those events, really, if you remember, and if you go back and you read it, they were, they were nothing short of disorienting, right, and discouraging, downright brutal in some sense, if you go back and you just survey what we studied last time. When you think about the call of God on your life, I don't know how often you think about that, what has God called me to do? Who has God called me to be? Those questions? When you think about those questions deeply, and when you try to discern what God is calling you to do, and you try to discern who God is calling you to be, and then actually following that call of God on your life, that's, it's typically a process. Okay? It's, not, it's not a one-day event, although sometimes there's days in the midst of the event and the journey that are like, oh, hey, that's a signpost, I remember that day. Um, kind of help to guide you in a certain direction, right? It's typically a process that is not for the faint of heart, though, right? It's tough. And I would say that in my estimation, in my experience, not that there's been a lot there, I'm still a young guy, but in my estimation, in my experience, I imagine that because, because the process of discerning the call of God in your life and then obediently following the call of God on your life, because it's not for the faint of heart, because it's oftentimes filled with disorientation, fogginess, discouragement, just brutal situations that you might find yourself in. Because of that, I imagine that that is why so many so-called believers in the West cannot explain what their ministry is. Those events, you think about this, these events, and again, you need to go back, if you haven't read, you need to go back and read the events that led to this passage. Those events that led to Paul's crew deciding to head over to Macedonia to actually continue in gospel ministry, those events were nothing short of what I've said, disorienting, discouraging, downright brutal. 
They navigated some things in our previous text two weeks ago that make most of us want to tap out of the game, okay? They navigated the pain of relational division between Paul and Barnabas, this rock star team, best friends in mission, and they divided and went two separate directions. Relational pain is probably one of the deepest, hardest pains to work through, I think, when it comes to just being human, let alone doing ministry. Um, you might remember also the pressure of what we called a ministry preparation that took place. Um, just the rigorous study and the training and the preparation that all of us need to go through um, to minister the gospel. And again, a little caveat here, it is not only the pastor's job to do ministry. Once you're a believer, you are a minister. Now, different roles, different places that you serve. <coughs> Every believer is a minister. And it's on us to be trained and be qualified and go through the ministry prep. And, and Timothy, if you remember in the, that previous text, he went through something that we would call adult circumcision. So I, you know, I don't have to like describe that too far for you, but the idea of being circumcised an adult, as an adult makes me queasy. Very queasy, Okay. Like when I, when I think of that as an adult, I think that sounds like, you know, a torture process that a terrorist used. And they, you, that was ministry prep for him. And thankfully, um, thankfully, that's not ministry prep for all of us. Thank God. Right? Okay. But it still kind of, you know, implies that preparing to do ministry and money population means you need to go through the rigors of training. And so they did that. But let's not also forget in those events two weeks ago, that there was the fogginess of one closed door after another. And you know what that's like just in life, right? Where you set a goal, you try to get there, you bump against a closed door, so you try to go around and go, oh, that doesn't work either. Well, maybe I'm not supposed to go that way. Maybe I should go this way then. And you try going this way, and you hit another roadblock. There's a pothole in the road. You blow a stinking tire. You get pulled over by cops in the middle of the night, right? We know what that's like. So they experienced that. Because the Holy Spirit continued to close doors to places that this crew wanted to go minister in. So again, the call to ministry is not for the faint of heart. But the call of ministry on every believer's life is, listen, I believe is the one place, the one place that you will experience God drawing straight lines with very crooked sticks. Because every one of us here is very crooked in one way or another. We're broken. We're sinful. We ain't perfect. If you think you are, you need to meet Jesus. Because he's the only one that was perfect, right? It's the only place you're going to experience God drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. And the other image I used that has stuck with me for years as a minister and as a believer is that God loves to accomplish heart surgery on other people with broken instruments, broken tools. Meaning that as you and I disciple one another, we are broken instruments. And God does heart surgery inside of each one of us through those broken instruments. I know a doctor. And I would say, you know, if, if, would it be a good idea for you to use broken scalpels? No, not a good idea at all, right? But this is what God does. This is what God does. And it's the only place you will experience that taking place. You're sitting on the fence, on the sidelines, not engaged in ministry. You will not experience this. And that's a big loss. That I think much of the Western church does lose out on. And in some regard, I think some of it is because pastors and churches, I think, lack the courage at times to call believers to this. Uh, I think at other times, I think churches, whether it's membership or leaders or whatever, are, are way too focused on setting up event-style, entertainment-style ministry, and all that it does is attract, but it doesn't transform. And I would say that even as a minister and as a leader, I struggle with that. Um, struggle with the balance between those things. But at the end of the day, ministry is not for the faint of heart. And while it's not, it's also the place where you will witness God doing the impossible. And if you're not engaged in ministry, you're missing out. That's the point, right? And as I said two weeks ago, God, I believe, has a plan for your ministry. It may not look like what you think it should. 
Um, and also, despite your attempts to take control of things, which we all do, control freaks, naturally, despite our attempts to take control of things, God literally is in full control, okay? Regardless of how much we try to control. We don't change his plan. We just make our journey down his pathway much more excruciating. God is in full control. Even in the midst of the closed doors, even in the midst of the painful experiences, the lost relationships, the brokenness, even in the midst of the foggy roads, God is in control. He's driving. And the, and the thing is, is, we need to do what that one country western singer says and just give Jesus the wheel, right? That's a terrible song. It's terrible theology. It's, well, actually, there's small parts of it that are good theology. But <laughs> in the midst of that, what happens is, is God, in moments, will give you these brief moments of clarity. And that's what happens two weeks ago when the, Paul has this vision of the man in Macedonia asking, please come to Macedonia to help us. It's a brief moment of clarity whereby you can go, okay, God spoke. I'm headed that direction. This is where I'm going. And here's the thing. Uh, this is a caveat to you. I want to throw this in there. The thing that will keep your head and your heart in the game as it comes to being a believer who is also a minister is knowing that God called you. Knowing that God called you. If you know that God spoke to you and called you to this, there ain't nothing that'll get you off your game. If Paul and his crew, and you think about this, if they had given up, okay, a couple weeks ago, if they had just given up, they decided that the cost of ministry was too much to bear, if the, they decided they had too busy of a schedule to follow God obediently in ministry, um, if, if some of that would have, if they would have just tapped out and stayed there, then, then the events that we're studying today that leads to the gospel spreading out to the entire West, these events would not have taken place as we are reading them. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying they wouldn't take place. They would not take place as we are reading them. Who knows who God would have chosen to use to plant the church in the city of Philippi? And if you know your Bibles, you know that there is a prison letter later from the Apostle Paul on death row to the church in Philippi. And the book is called Philippians. And it's my friend Joe's favorite book in the whole world. The last three sermons he's preached were out of that book. I love it when Joe preaches. Because I love it when he preaches from Philippians. So, would we have Philippians then? So there's lots of bunny trails and, and, and ramifications from thinking about what it looks like to pursue God's call on your life. The challenge here, before we dive into the text some more, the challenge for all of us here today is this. If you're sitting on the sidelines, if you're giving just enough of yourself to God or just enough of yourself to his church to kind of like squeeze by, right? If that's you, if you're showing up just enough for people to maybe know your name, recognize your face, maybe just giving enough of your time, your talent, your treasure to kind of pat yourself on the back with your half-hearted investment, if that's you, this is a challenge for you question is how will you hear the challenge right if that's you today my hope my prayer is that what we're about to study would challenge you to repent you might be like repent really you're going to call us to repent around the beginning of the message yeah my hope is that this would prepare hearts that desire to repent not see repentance as a destination like i already repented i'm good but see repentance as a journey like i need to continuously repent and today is an opportunity to continue to repent of something and that something is from our half-hearted service to God. Okay? So my hope is that you be prepared for that. And that as you repent from half-hearted service to God, that you would then obediently jump into the ocean of ministry with your entire heart, your entire soul, your entire mind. Why? Why is this so important for me? Because I want to build a big church? No. Is that desire there inside of me? Yes. Is it sinful? Yes. Is it also right? Yeah, because more people can reach more people, right? But I really don't give a rip what size a church is. What I care about more is that you would experience the overwhelming presence of God. That's more important than anything else to me. To experience the overwhelming presence of God as he meets you in a place of desperation. 
There is nothing, I think, that may make you more desperate for the presence of God, for God to help you, than when you're in the midst of pursuing obedience to the call of ministry. Bang this drum for a minute longer and we'll dive in. Okay? There's so many within the Western church today that settle for petty arguments and call that ministry. And it makes my stomach turn. We settle for petty arguments over the color of the carpet or the administration of the music ministry or finding the right strategic plans or, worse yet, the one that really gets me twisted is majoring in minor doctrines instead of majoring in the major doctrines, which leads to minoring in the major doctrines. Follow me? And the reality is, I think this subtle shift happens in the church because, because we have long since lost the experience of being desperate enough for God to show up and do something miraculous. If you're bored with God today, the reason you're bored is because you're not desperate. That's it. Sermon done, right? But here's the thing. If you want more than a mundane relationship with God, if you want to experience the beauty of God meeting you in your desperation, if that's what you want, maybe it's time to lay aside your excuses. Maybe it's time to lay aside your human reasoning. And reason isn't wrong. Don't hear me wrong. But sometimes you need to lay aside some human reasoning to let God do miraculous things. Lay it aside long enough so that you can lay it all on the line for the one that you claim, you believe in, who laid it all on the line for you. That's the challenge today, before we even look at the text. I would submit that that is the place that Paul and his crew are in. First thing you see in the text, verses 11 through 12, is what I would call a speedy trip to Philippi. A speedy trip to Philippi, okay? Now, these first few verses, 11 and 12, as you look at it, they're really easy to just kind of throw away as mere introductory commentary, right? Okay, well, it tells us about where they went. Big deal. Whew, move on. The reality, though, is if you study it a little bit and you look at the geography, so on and so forth, you're going to see that a trip from Troas to Samothrace was typically a minimum of, catch this, drum roll, please, ching, five days. It would normally take five days to get from one, that place to the other place. And the text tells us, if you look at it, that they made the trip in less than two days, which means they had a massive tailwind blowing them on down the road. This is miraculous that they made it there that fast. And when they made it there that fast, they immediately went into the city of Philippi, which was known to be the leading city, right? The capital city. So think Lincoln, Nebraska, capital city. This is where they went. They went to the capital city of the area they went to. And that capital city, do the study on Philippi, that city is known to be a Cush retirement community for Roman military veterans. Veterans Day was the other day. Thank you, veterans, for your service. Love you. Appreciate you. This was a retirement community for ex-Roman military veterans, right? I said that all wrong. What God is doing here, though, think about it. God is literally using Paul and his crew to plant the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ in the center of the heart of the enemy's retirement community. Not the place I would choose to go, especially when it's full of a bunch of military vets. Can you imagine? Imagine this. Can you imagine looking back years later for the Apostle Paul writing that letter to the church in Philippi? Right? You're, you're awaiting your death in prison because of your ministry. You imagine that testimony. Yeah, I'm going to get axed here shortly because of my ministry. I'm going to get dead. <laughs> I'm going to lose my head. The enemy's going to get me. And what do you do? Sit in prison and whine, complain, right? Poor woe is me. Not Paul. Paul gets to work, writes letters to the churches that he planted. And one of them that he writes is to Philippians. This church in Philippi that doesn't even exist right now, right? So can you imagine that? Years later, you're writing a letter 
to the church in Philippi as you await your death in prison because of your ministry. Now, sadly, <coughs> most believers in the West, I don't think, will ever experience something so humbling or humiliating. Most believers in the West, if you look at the Western church today, will be comfortable and happy tallying their financial donations to the church at the end of the tax season, if they even give more than a few cents per year. That's a reality. Not just because I want to get paid. It's just a reality. We love our money. We are greedy as a Western church. So, most believers in the West are comfortable with that, tallying up their financial donations at the end of the year, if they give something, while at the same time relishing in their consumeristic participation in the church gathering, usually a few times per month, as though the church is just a mere social club. This is the reality of what we face as a church, the pressures we face in the West. Most most will never experience the absolute desperation that you would feel if boarding a boat headed into unknown territory occupied by the enemy, armed only with the gospel. Story that I haven't told before we move on to point two. Deciding whether to put it here or there, I'm going to put it here. We'll pray that it's the Holy Spirit. Story that I haven't told yet that some of the guys have said, when are you going to tell this story? Man. Most of you know that outside of just being a church planter and starting a church that runs a rescue mission within a yard of hell, about three, almost four years ago, we started a motorcycle ministry. And our heart was to reach outlaw bikers, right? We wanted to be on their turf. We didn't just want to go to bike shows. We wanted to do that for sure. We wanted to be in their clubhouses, at their private events, in their homes. We want to build relationships there. Why? Because a lot of those guys aren't going to walk into a church. So we wanted to go where they're at and earn the respect to be there. Inevitably, in the midst of that, there is a club who will remain unnamed who got really upset that we were starting this. And um, I thought I was trying to bless them, like, yo, I want to bring some food to your event and bless you guys. And he's like, yo, can I meet you in this park? I want to talk. And I'm like, well, I'll make sure I have at least four guns on me. And uh, stupid me, I go alone. Um, all my guys are working, okay? And I meet this guy in the park, and he proceeds from that point forward to say, stop trying to build a club, go join a different God squad, I have your address, you have no right to exist, knock it off. And I kept asking him questions like, hey, bro, seriously, like you're telling me that our leaders in our church can't do some ministry on motorcycles, like we're not going to put patches on, like we're going to try to follow the protocol. And he just kept dropping F-bombs on me and stop it and just threatening. And I finally looked at him towards the end of the conversation, and I finally just said, you know what, bro? All due respect, you're putting me in a position to decide whether I fear you more than the God that I believe called me to this. And he flipped me the bird and walked away. And as he was walking away, I was like, hey, when do you want that food at your clubhouse? <laughs> yeah, I, I do the stupidest thing sometimes. That's one story. Um, I share that story not to say that all of you need to be like me and go to the same places I go to, but I hope it would challenge you. Like, I walked away from them, I'm still alive. And here's the thing, even if I do get killed or the truck blows up or the house blows up, whatever, like, I don't care, I know where I'm going. And the place I'm headed to is a lot better than here. And it's very possible that God may not call all of you to the same exact places I go to. But those places that you are called to go to, who better to reach them than you, right? That's one story. I have one more I might share later. Let's move on to point two. Again, my hope in the midst of this is just challenge you, encourage you, and maybe show you a vision of what it's like to just run this way, right? And I let God do the rest. Second thing we see in the text, <clears throat> what do you see? It's a prayer meeting down by the river, right? Isn't there a song called Down by the River? Somebody know that? Can somebody sing that really fast? I'm kidding. Totally don't do it. Don't do it. It's a prayer meeting down by the river, right? Um, the fact that the, the city of Philippi was literally the capital city of a Roman state full of retired military personnel who um, literally pay no taxes at this point. That's part of their retirement plan. They pay no taxes. It's a perk of being a Roman military vet. Um, this tells us something about the culture okay, that you need to think about because we need to think about cultures when we think about reaching people. 
Um, the majority of the people living in Philippi had no real responsibilities at this point because they're retired, right? Now, I know, like, my friend Joe is retired, and he's like, bro, I started working more when I retired than back when I used to work, and I get that. I understand that. Um, but that's generally the sense of this retirement community, man. They're retired. They don't have to do much of anything if they don't want to. On top of that, they're fairly wealthy because they paid no taxes. They also enjoyed their entertainment in the final years of their lives, which is something that even us in the West um, really kind of promote, that once you retire, you go buy yourself a, a big camper and you go collect shells on the seashore, according to John Piper, which... It's crazy when you look at old lady missionaries who are over there in third world countries willing to die for the gospel. That's a massive, massive difference. Which is right, which one's wrong. That's the community they're in. Uh, You can definitely tell that it's uh, an entertainment-based community when you kind of look here a few verses later, as you might remember, there's this insertion of a fortune-telling circus girl, right? That's in the next portion of the text. So I imagine Philippi to be like a retirement village in a place like Vegas or California or Florida, right? It's it's full of self-funded retirees, people who are living out their last days in relative comfort and ease. That's the place that God sends these guys. Now, it's also likely, as you're doing a little bit of cultural thinking, it's also likely that there's not a single synagogue in Philippi. And this is proven by the fact that Paul and his crew, they don't first visit a synagogue as was the custom. But instead, what do they do? Instead, they go looking down by the river for a prayer gathering. This was the custom of Jewish believers when there were not enough families to formally institute a synagogue. They held prayer meetings down by the river. At this prayer meeting, down by the river, this is where they meet a young, wealthy businesswoman named Lydia who hears the gospel, gets saved, along with her entire household. Now, you might be like, why is that so significant? That culture in that day really valued men. Not that they didn't value women, but they would value men. And so for, for God to have this in the text, that this is the first believer in Philippi is very significant because this is a wealthy businesswoman. Her entire household gets saved. Think about this. The joy of seeing someone get saved because of God working through your effort, I will say is something that you need to experience. I'm not going to do a show of hands because I don't need to. You already know in your heart Where you're at on this. If you have not seen someone get saved because of God working through your efforts, you're missing out on a full experience of depending upon God and living in the freedom that God gives you. You're only in a place where you can say, hey, I got saved, got my get out of hell free card, get to go to heaven for the rest of my life. That's all you get to say. And as good as that is, all that is is fire insurance. You don't get to experience the intimacy of depending upon God on a daily basis for the lost people in your life that you desperately want to see saved because you don't want to see them go where you were previously headed. (coughs) I find that most believers, once again, in the West will settle for minimal investment while expecting great returns on their laziness and their disobedience. Rather than doing everything in their power to invest their entire livelihood into sharing the gospel with other believers in the byways of prayer meetings down by the river, or, or we could say outreaches in the parking lot, or we could say time spent in biker clubhouses, or we could say praying for waiters and waitresses at a local bar, right? While eating dinner. Instead of those kinds of life investment and seeing the lost get saved, most believers will count their investment by serving one time a month, showing up to Bible studies a few times per month, giving 2 to 3% of their income, if that, to the church on an annual basis. Those stats are real. They're all over the place. This mentality... This kind of mentality in the Western church is one that reeks of a fundamental misunderstanding of the saving grace of the cross of Jesus. 
on a personal basis as well as a missional basis. I think more people are more concerned about what God wants from them. And they just like get focused on that. I think most of us are like that. Like, what does God want from me? Like, he wants everything from you. That's all there is to it. And if you have a problem with that, you have failed to understand saving grace. Because he gave his son for you. And and we would go, yeah, I know the answer to that. But there's still this thing in my heart. And I would say, what my old pastor told me years ago, when I struggled with the concept of tithing, because I really struggled with that. Years and years ago, my pastor would say to me, he'd say, yeah, you're struggling with it because you're still disobedient. Your disobedience is what leads you to be in prison. That's why you're still stuck in this place where you're concerned more about what God wants from you than being focused on what God has done for you. You're looking at the wrong glass. And it totally radically changed me. Now, does that mean I walked out the next day and gave my entire life? No. It's a process. I didn't just repent once that day. I continued to repent for the last 20 years. Because it kept coming up in my life. The selfishness and the greed and the the control factors. Like, I think I know better than God does. Isn't that crazy? That mentality, it's one that reeks of a fundamental misunderstanding of the saving grace of the cross of Jesus on a personal basis as well as a missional basis. I, I seriously, I'm, here's a question for our members mostly, but I seriously wonder why is it that we did an outreach recently I seriously wonder why only two people from within our church membership, actually it was one member and one prospective member, shared stories of praying with people at that outreach. 225 people came through. I know how many people came through because I counted every hand I shook when they came in the parking lot. 225 people came through our parking lot, right? How long do you think God will bless us as a membership with that kind of outreach if we can't even pray for those people? That bothers me. What does that say about our membership base? What does that say about our actual desire to connect with the lost in our community? That's what I wonder. What does it say? Because actions speak louder than words. We set our priorities, and we decide what we're going to do, and we do it, and it proves what's going on in our hearts. I think the reality is we don't care, or we're too scared, which means we don't trust. That's heavy, isn't it? Could it be, question, could it be that we have not fully understood the nature of our own salvation, let alone truly wrestled with the call to see others saved? Could it be? Could it be that we would have never been caught dead, or alive for that matter, (coughs) at a prayer meeting full of women down by the river? I'm not going there. Are you crazy? A prayer meeting full of gossipy women? No. Heck no. I'm going to go to the pub, drink a beer, and try to reach some dudes there. (coughs) Certainly ain't staying in her house. (laughs) Where does Paul go? She prevailed upon them, (laughs) it says. She twisted their arm. That's, That's what it means. She grabbed him by the arm, twisted, said, you're coming to my house. I'm making you some dinner. Paul's like, crap, we're going. (laughs) But that was preceded by them going to the prayer meeting down by the river, a place that a lot of us probably wouldn't go. Lydia got saved there. And you know what else happened? On that day, the church in Philippi got planted, got started. I would love to see a church planted in Grand Island. I'd love to see a well over in Grand Island. I don't need to lead it. I don't want to do any of the the video stuff. None of that. Just love to see a group of people in Grand Island go, let's take some of what we're doing here and let's try to start that there. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Wouldn't be my legacy, it'd be our legacy, you know? It's very possible, (coughs) very possible that if, by and large, a church does not willingly practice the basics of evangelism in a community like praying for some guests. Just one. That was the challenge. If you're a member here, be at this event, pray for one person, share the story. 
That was the challenge. If I can't challenge us as members to do that and see results, then what are we doing? What am I doing? It's just a paycheck then. I don't do this for the paycheck because if I did, I'd find a different job because I don't get paid enough. I work three-quarter time for less than part-time pay. I'm just being straight and real. Like, I don't give a rip. I can find a better paying job somewhere else. So the question is, is the fruit of this ministry valuable? And will we as a membership step up to the plate and move forward? Or will we keep playing games? I don't want to play games. The idea of people going to hell is far too serious of an issue for me. I'll quit being mean. Okay. It's very possible, if by and large, a church is not willing to practice the basics of evangelism in a community, it's very likely that our old enemy, let's shift gears, very likely that our old enemy, the serpent, has probably made his presence very well known, much more than we thought. And that's the third thing you see in the text. Serpent raises his ugly head, his ugly old face, Shows up in town, verses 16 through 34, right? Whenever God begins a new work in a group of people, our old adversary, the serpent, the devil, the Satan, what does he do? He shows up to oppose the work. Anytime you start taking steps in the right direction, you know where Satan's going to be. Not back there in the dust. It's going to be right there in your face. Which leads me to my second story, and then I'll come back. <laughs> we continue to pursue starting a motorcycle ministry to reach outlaw bikers, right? And again, I don't share this because I want you guys to do the same thing as I do. You need to do you. I just want you to know what pursuing stuff like this would be like. Went to an event in Grand Island this last August. We've been given a blessing by the dominant club in the state to wear our patches and be who we are, which is crazy. An outlaw club would go, hey, you Christian believers, you guys are rock solid. We want you wearing your patches. We want you out in the community doing your ministry, so do it. We're at this event in Grand Island. There's this other, this other club, right, that threatened us. They're there. There's like, what, 20 of them? Probably 25. And uh, long story short, uh, they came over, walked right behind me. They're like, it's time for you to leave. Get out. I'm like, what is up, man? Like, leave me alone. We went walking around, a little bit shooken. There was only four of us there. Is that right? I'm looking at Michael because Mike, this was Mike's first event. Yo, Mike decided to give him a bike and go with us, which kudos to you because Mike doesn't look like a biker, does he? Anybody just look at Mike. <laughs> Mike does not look like a biker. <laughs> but Mike has a heart for brotherhood and he has a heart for reaching lost people. So, these guys are like, you need to leave. I'm like, man, leave us alone. We went to the other side of the vent. We sat down. We grabbed a drink. We start praying. I'm like, God, please keep us safe. Don't let us get our butts kicked out back. We don't want to die today. Security guard comes walking in. He goes, you guys going to be a problem? I was like, what are you talking about? We're Christians. We're men of peace. We're not going to be a problem. And he goes, well, that club over there says you're going to be a problem. I'm like, well, that's a real chicken way out of trying to get something done you go to the cops to get us kicked out that makes a lot of sense and we didn't do anything i told the guys like man i'm a pastor pastor of church lead a motorcycle ministry we're men of peace we're here to pray with people and share the gospel that's all we're here for we ain't, ain't going to start no trouble it seems to me like they're probably starting the trouble he goes well, i'm gonna go check on this he comes back and he goes listen they really want you out i had been told from day one call the dominant club tell them if we have issues dominant club has always told me the last thing we need joe is you stepping in the pulpit with a black eye on a sunday morning we would rather step in and handle that for you. So you let us know. So I made the call. And my guy on the other side of the phone, he goes, give me 15 minutes. The guy will be there. Stay on the phone. Where are those guys at? We walked out the, the back door. We stood by our bikes. And uh, those guys from that other club stood about as far as the back wall is, just standing there. You know, they followed us out, stood there, me mugging us, waiting. Finally, the guy on the phone is like, is my guy there yet? I'm like, no, he's not there yet. He goes, you know what? Just take your phone over there. I'm going to tell this guy where to go. And I was like, crap, my phone's going to get broke. God, just, I just had replaced it, too, that morning. So I start walking over there. And this is like a scene out of a movie, guys. Like, these guys start walking towards me. I'm walking towards them. Got them on the phone. I'm shaking in my boots. I mean, I carry guns. I can fight a little bit, but there's a lot of them, okay? I'm going to go down. This is going to hurt really bad. And I start walking over there. And like a scene out of the movie, like, good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever that, you know, do we're walking towards each other, and those guys from the dominant club on their bikes come roaring in right in front of him, cut out, park over here. I look, I look back at those guys, they shake their heads like, you done screwed up now. And I'm like, uh-huh. And they left, and we're walking over to this guy, he goes, what are you doing, Joe? He gives me a big hug, and I'm like, well, we're leaving, we got kicked out. He's like, you didn't get kicked out. I said, we did. He goes, no, Joe, you didn't get kicked out, we're here. You're fine, let's go in there. 
I'm thinking we're going to walk in there and we're just going to mosey through. They're going to see we're with these guys. Like These guys are protecting us and we're good. Again, the crazy thing is we're just Christians trying to share the gospel and God's using this dominant club that you would recognize e easily anywhere without me throwing names. God uses them to help us do ministry. Think of the miraculous nature. I get to experience that. We walk in the front gate. He didn't want to slide in the back gate. <laughs> he walked in the front gate. He walks right up to this club, right up to the dude the guy's kicked out, gets nose to nose with him. And long story short, at the end of the conversation, he goes, you are a bully. And there's other words he used. And uh, I can't use those words here, right? So there's somebody who would probably get mad at me, but you're a bully. Quit bullying these believers. Leave them alone. And we went walking away. And we stayed the rest of the night. I did pray for some people while we were there. I did hear some stories of people that needed prayer for things, and we are praying for them. God opened the doors for ministry for us in that place, even though the serpent raised his ugly head. Here's the thing. I remember asking Michael at the end of that night, bro, you ever want to do this again? Because that was a wild event. And he's like, I'm never going to experience this sitting in a comfy church pew on a Sunday morning. That doesn't mean you leave the comfy church pew. It just means that when you get up out of that comfy church pew and you walk out that door, you look at the sign that says, out here is our mission field. Expect the serpent to show up. In the text, Satan shows up, right? And in the text, he tries to oppose the advancement of the gospel in Philippi through a demon-possessed girl and her slave owners. This is whack. This is crazy. This is nuts. This demon-possessed girl is referred to in verse 16 as a slave girl who had the spirit of divination. <coughs> the original Greek language would have literally um, translated this way. She would be known as the python S or the snake girl. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. Hadn't been down in my office in the basement for four months because I don't like snakes. Guess what was down there this morning as I came out from preparing this message again? A, a flipping snake. Thank you, James, for killing the snake for me and getting it out of the church. I will never go down in that basement ever again <laughs> until somebody can assure me there will not be snakes. Somebody please take care of the snakes, okay? Snake girl, Python-S. Um, there's a lot there that you can study. I've got it footnoted. If you look up my blog, you can find the footnotes. You can find the commentary and go check it out. It's pretty, it's fascinating. That's what she would have been called, Python-S, snake girl. She's meant in this situation to be a distraction from the gospel. But here's the thing. God is in control, right? He's sovereign. He saw this whole thing coming. And so Paul, in through Paul, he casts that demon out the girl, and then seemingly she joins the church too. Now, this is a heck of a core team to plant a church, if you ask me. Two women to start with. Okay. One of them is a wealthy businesswoman, and the other one, ex-snake girl, now saved girl. Crazy. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't choose this. If you sat me down with another church planner and I'm coaching him and I get that privilege to do that, I would not say, hey, you know what you should do? You should find a wealthy businesswoman. You should find ex-snake girl. That would be good for you. That's, that's not the way you strategize when you plant churches. Serpent's next tactic after this is try to get Paul and Silas thrown in prison, right? Some trumped up racial charges. Hey, they're Jews. That's where it started. Trumped up charges. They're trying to get us to do things that's unlawful for us. That's a bunch of bogus lies. Satan always uses lies to try to get us off our game when it comes to pursuing ministry. The lie that has been used on me in the midst of that motorcycle ministry, I'll keep that same theme, is because we called the dominant club like we were told to do, we're now a bunch of wussies. We couldn't handle our own stuff. Which is crazy because why would four guys try to go up against 20? That's stupid. The odds are not in your favor. Unless you have an AR. Okay, oh my goodness. This is what Satan does. He tries to spread little lies about you to get you off your game. That's exactly what he does here. What happens is those two dudes, Paul and Silas, wind up in solitary confinement after getting beaten to within an inch of their life. And on top of that, they got shackles on their legs. Now they're laying down on their backs in the middle of the room after being beaten. Sounds like a very discouraging way to end the day of ministry, if you ask me. It's always discouraging when the serpent shows his ugly face in the midst of God doing great things. The hardship of following God obediently in ministry is usually the reason that most believers tap out, head back to their comfy church gatherings with little to no expectation of real sacrifice or danger. The reality is that 
you do not get to experience earthquakes. So if you do that, you just go back to your comfortable place of living. You do not get to experience earthquakes that rock the difficult circumstances of doing ministry if you only give the bare minimum. That leads us to the fourth thing, where an earthquake rocks the jail, right? Verses 25 to 34. Paul and Silas, they get locked up. They get beaten within an inch of their lives because of the false charges. Two-member church in Philippi. Member, two members right now. Seems like it's going to get crushed before it actually gets off the ground, right? What do you do in circumstances like these? It's the question. What do you do in circumstances like these when it's too much to bear? Most believers, most humans, <coughs> they just switch churches. They just go where it's easier. We'll go somewhere else where it seems like it fits our needs better, right? For me, this is after 11 years of planting and pastoring here. I've pastored in other places and ministered in other places. I had a friend of mine who pastored the uh, E-Free Church here for 20-plus years, retired. And he told me, he said, after pastoring other churches and other places, he said, Hastings, Nebraska is really wild when it comes to church hopping. He says, there is a commitment issue under the surface in this culture for some reason. Not sure why. We're just church hopping. My challenge would be stick and stay. Through the thick and thin, through the hard, through the ugly. I always say, if you think you found a perfect church, better get moving, because you're going to jack it up. But the reality is, if you don't jack it up, I'm going to. Really quick, because I'm pretty jacked up, and so are you. So most believers would just do that, or, or here's the other one, as humans, or even believers, and this, this is a massive turnoff in a church, right? For those of you who are maybe newer to your faith or just checking out, this is one that, that still twists me up bad. The other thing you see in churches today is I mean, when hardship happens, hard circumstances, just sit around gossiping, complaining, point out everybody else's shortcomings. You know what's really great is a thing called humility. We all walk around and we talk about our own shortcomings. doesn't mean we don't talk about other people's very carefully with them. But it means I talk about mine far more than I talk about yours. Paul and Silas saw their circumstances as an opportunity for prayer and singing songs of praise. I'll just try that the next time. You walk into some tough circumstances. Start praying and start singing some songs of praise. Don't just do it for five minutes. Do it for like 50. Try that. Try giving 50 minutes of your day to praying and singing songs of praise to Jesus. It might radically change the outlook of your life, number one. And it might really affect people around you. You know why I say that? Because look at the text again. In verse 25, what does it say? What does the text tell us? It tells us that the prisoners were listening to them. Well, that's pretty fascinating, pretty easy to miss out on if you're just reading through the text really, really fast, right? The prisoners were listening to them. People are always watching you. People are always listening to you. Your actions, your words, they tell the story of what you really believe about Jesus. Can I say that again? Your actions and your words tell the story of what you really believe about Jesus. And in this case, Paul and Silas had an absolutely captive audience as they proclaimed the gospel in prayer and in song in the midst of their dire circumstances. What happens? God shows up in a powerful way, does it through an earthquake, winds up leading to the Philippian jailer getting saved along with his entire household. So, by my count, count it with me if you want, According to the old video we used to use, Satan's score is still zero. And just in this story alone, God's score is four. It'd be great to see the Huskers have that kind of a... That would be a miracle. That would be an earthquake. Okay? Well, we got a long ways to go to get there. Satan's zero. God's at four. Number one, the trip that should have taken five days minimum was completed in two at the most, right? Secondly, second point for God, the first convert member of the church in Philippi was a wealthy businesswoman, not a stand-up retired man as the culture would have expected. Number three, the snake girl got saved, right? She becomes a second member of the church at Philippi. And then number four, the Philippian jailer becomes a third member of the church at Philippi after an earthquake interrupts Paul and Silas' Christian rock concert. That's pretty awesome. The problem with the Western church, I'm going to keep coming back banging the same dang drum. The problem with the Western church and the problem with us, I think, the thing that we're tempted towards often, that we're stuck in often, that we need to deal with, 
is that we often place more of our faith in a certain demographic of people to start churches and sustain them than actually placing our faith in the God who is the one who starts and sustains churches. God has always chosen the least of these to do his work both in and through. This usually means that God chooses people from very different backgrounds, very different walks of life to start and sustain his church so that the gospel can be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The last thing we need is another church that is full of doctors and lawyers. You do need some doctors and lawyers. So for the doc, thankful you're here. We don't have a lawyer. Maybe that's because lawyers can't get... No, I'm kidding. Easy, bro. No. I have known some very godly lawyers, so let that go on the record. What we need more of is churches that are diverse, which I love looking out here and seeing the diversity around the room. It's not just racial, ethnic diversity, right? That's stupid if you get stuck on that. We're talking about diversity, period, which is very broad. And I love looking around the room, seeing young, old, different ethnicities, different social economic backgrounds, different experiences, saved from this, always saved since birth. Very, very cool. We need that diversity. You know why? Because we would each speak to a different kind of person. I might go sit in a biker clubhouse full of pot smoke. Actually, that's a lie. I used to love smoking pot, so I, I can't lie, to be honest. No. I, I don't think many of you are going to go there. But you know, I, there's some places that you can go that I probably am never going to go to. That's why diversity is so important. So, question is this. After all that, how many people do you come into contact with on a daily basis? How many of those people have you prayed for? Be honest. How many of those people have you shared the gospel with? Be honest. How many of those people are following Jesus today because of your obedience to the Great Commission? And how often have you allowed your circumstances to be the excuse for tapping out of your obedience to God? If you, listen, if you allow the pain and hardship of ministry to become the excuse for your disobedience, then it is highly likely that you will never, ever, until you change, which, by the way, change is what repentance is about, You'll never experience the joy of salvation. The whole salvation Christian experience will just be some mundane part of your life. Boring. Unfulfilling. You won't experience the joy of salvation. You will not experience the wonder of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. <coughs> Making those tough circumstances the means, the means for someone else's salvation. You won't experience that. The question is, do you want to? Because I can tell you it's fascinating. It's absolutely infuriating. It's absolutely frustrating. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> when you start experiencing those kinds of emotions, you know what happens is you get desperate. And in a place of desperation is where you start to center in on depending upon God for the freedom that you need to walk by obedience, not only in fighting your own sin and continuing to walk in salvation, but to seeing others experience the same. Last thing in the text, fifth thing, right? We know the end of the story. Paul and Silas get released from prison. Good day, because that doesn't always happen in the story. So lest you start believing in a health, wealth, and prosperity thing where it's like, I follow Jesus and he's going to make me healthy, wealthy, rich, wise, and much sexier in the mirror. Like, if you believe that, then, and you're looking at me up here, like, it doesn't work that way, okay. <coughs> this time, though, they do get released from prison. This final portion of our text, the city officials wind up having a change of heart, right? They have that change of heart once they realize that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And it happens once they realize that the charges were false charges to begin with. I'll wait for the kids to get in and get seated. Welcome back, kiddos. Can you say hi? Kids? Hey, it's good to have you back. Did you have fun with Miss Karen? Don't say no. Hey, glad to have you back. Let me dive back in and we'll be done. In this final portion of the text, the city officials have a change of heart, right? And they have a change of heart once they realize that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. 
and that the charges were false charges to begin with. And so what do they do? They attempt to let Paul and Silas go privately. But what does Paul do? I love Paul's tenacity in this, right? Like, I'm telling you, me, I probably be like, thank you, I'm out. Paul's like, yo, no, wait a minute, hold the boat. We're not going nowhere. I'm going to sit my happy boat right here in this prison cell until what they publicly did to us also gets publicly apologized for. Paul got some cojones. I love that. Makes me feel bad for ever walking out of that event in the first place. Wish we had just turned around and been like, who do you think you are, you son of the devil? Well, that would have been Paul. It wasn't Joe. I'm, st- I'm still learning, right? Can you imagine the conversations once they were free? Can you imagine the conversation in the next church gathering. It was not business as usual. There was nothing mundane about it. I remember our conversation in the garage that night, man. We sat and we prayed for all those guys, right? It was, we were like, can you believe God just did this? I remember at one point at that event, one of those guys looked at me, the guy that stood up for us, and he was like, Joe, what's that smirk on your face? I was like, man, I didn't even know there was a smirk on my face. I'm sorry. I want to be respectful. But I was just thinking, like, God in the Old Testament would take Israel, this itty-bitty little nation that would get opposed by these massive nations, bullied all the time, right? And then God would show up in some miraculous way would just wipe out the bad guys. And I got to experience a little bit of that through you tonight. And he's like, hell yeah, man, that's cool. That's why we love you. I was like, okay. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> you imagine the conversation that Paul and Silas had with the rest of the church that day when they got set free. You think anyone in that little church was worried about the petty issues that we so often worry about? No, I don't think so. You think anyone left there not thinking about sharing their faith with someone? You think anyone left there not thinking about praying for everyone they met? If the wealthy businesswoman gets saved, gives generously to support the ministry. The snake girl now becomes the saved girl, right? Maybe some ex-cons got saved too in that Philippian jail. The Philippian jailer gets saved as well. I'm not sure if he quit his job or not. The bad guys just got shamed publicly, and Paul and Silas encouraged the new church to hold on to their crucified, risen, and returning Christ. That's a fascinating story. This story, it begins with Paul and his crew setting sail for Macedonia, ends with Paul and Silas being released from prison. This is about so much more than merely being set free from a Roman jail. I would say that this passage is a tangible vision of the freedom that we gain in Christ whenever we come to him, not only for salvation, but then also follow him in obedience evangelistically. Like a wealthy woman gets saved. Let me go again. An ex-demoniac girl gets saved. A Philippian jailer gets saved. The church in Philippi gets planted. All why? Because Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who's writing this, by the way, didn't tap out. They were obedient to the call of God in their lives to be about the ministry of the gospel on hell's doorstep. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Disobedience results in prison. Obedience results in freedom. The church in Philippi was being planted on the bedrock of freedom to obey in Christ in the capital city within enemy territory. You will not ever experience that kind of freedom in a comfy seat two to three times a month on Sunday mornings while giving two to three percent of your time, your talent, your treasure to a church. If you even give that, you'll not experience this kind of freedom. I don't give a rip about your money. I don't give a rip about your time. I don't give a rip about your talent. What I do give a rip about is do you actually walk in the freedom that God has given you? Or are you still locked up in prison claiming to be saved? That's more important to me than anything else. Because that kind of result, that kind of result that I've just described in the Western church that describes most of our churches, ours included at times, that's a pitiful investment in light of the horror of the cross of Christ that promises salvation That's a pitiful investment in light of the power of the empty tomb that we say we find victory in. That's a pitiful investment in light of the promised return of Jesus that we say we find hope in. Because here's the reality. This is the final thing I want to say. Freedom to obey Jesus rests on whether or not we truly trust the promise of the cross to set us free. Has it set you free? Then be obedient. Right? Freedom to obey Jesus also rests on whether or not you truly find victory in the empty tomb. 
If you found victory in the empty tomb, then live in victory instead of living in defeat. I don't want to live my life in defeat like a survivor. I want to live my life in victory like somebody who's going to win. And the reason I know I'm going to win is because Jesus left that tomb empty. That's the way I want to live. That's what enables me to give what I give. That's what enables me to invest the time, the talent, treasure that I invest. What I'm looking for is a group of people that want to do it with me. Not so I get paid billions, but so that we reach the lost. We see crazy salvations happen. You know what the cool thing is? We have seen that in this church time and time again. And at times I think we slip back. So I think this is a wake-up call for us a little bit maybe. Here's the reality. The last freedom piece, the freedom to obey Jesus rests on whether or not we truly find our ultimate hope in the promise of Christ's return. You find your hope somewhere else, that's the reason we would live in disobedience. If you find your hope in the promise of return of Jesus, you know where you're headed. There ain't nothing to get you off your game. You'll stick and you'll stay and you'll do it. You'll be who you say you are and you'll do what you say you're going to do. Won't be a fake Christian. Won't be a hypocrite. Well, maybe sometimes. We'll probably still screw that up sometimes, right? But by and large, the story of your life and my life and our little church family will be. Those are people who are what they say they are, and those are people that do what they say they're going to do. See, a church that gives little, evangelizes little, loves her comfort, argues over petty things, cares nothing for the person across the room from them, has not fully trusted in the cross of Christ, nor found victory in the empty tomb, nor basis her hope in the promise of Christ's return. The church that was planted in Philippi, seriously, last final thing. The church that was planted in Philippi, that church could boast in Christ alone, but could also boast that she was planted through the radical salvations of three very unexpected, very diverse people. They could also boast that the core of her identity was a newfound freedom in Christ to not only be saved, but to also become a church that surpassed their biggest dreams in seeing others getting saved. And the question finally left for us is this. Will that be our identity? That's the question. And that rests on whether or not you truly have heard from the text. And anything that I've said that actually came from God, if you've heard that and if you're willing to change, repent, confess, Take another step towards Jesus. Depend on him as you try to live out your freedom in obedience to him. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord God, as we close, that you would be with us. Help us turn our attention to the foot of a bloody cross. Turn our attention to the doorway of an empty tomb. Turn our attention to the hope that we have in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.